Hello, Pregure Pardon listeners. I'm Gailey McDougall, pronouns she, her, licensed midwife and moderator of this little podcast you're listening to right now. Welcome to this very special episode that is so near and dear to my heart, where we will be discussing some LGBTQ plus issues, specifically in the birth community. Today, we are very excited to have the amazing Francis Lenarducci with us to chat about this topic. Francis is a licensed, certified professional midwife, pronouns they, them, and credentials that range from full spectrum doula to midwife to herbalist. Francis has become a huge asset to the national birth community in the last couple of years, and we are really fortunate to have them here to help us navigate these wide range of issues that affect a community that is very dear to their heart as well. So without further ado, I'll let Francis say hello and give an introduction. Hi, Gailey. Hi, Francis. <laughs> Hi, Pregur Pardon listeners. Um, my name is Francis. I, like Gailey said, I'm a midwife. Um, I work in Nashville. Um, I am both a part of the queer community. Um, I identify as non-binary and trans. And um, I'm also a birth worker. And so I kind of have both the perspective of offering healthcare and also seeking healthcare. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be here and have this conversation with you. So just to kind of get our listeners on the same page, why don't we just start with some basic definitions um, just so that we can get on the same page about language going forward? Um, I will also just give a really honest, transparent disclaimer that I hope to always do my very best not to harm anyone in any way. So if throughout our conversation there's any kind of accidental misgendering or anything like that, then Frances knows that she can sort of say, hey, Kaylee, guess what? You know, I think I just did it, right? <laughs> yep, I just did it. So they know that they can just look at me and we can be really honest about that because that's what this, hopefully this whole conversation will kind of um, help everyone to see that this isn't like, it's not a... It doesn't need to be a political, a religious, a fringe issue. It's just a conversation about asking people who they are and getting to know people better. Mm-hmm. So um, so I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to listen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll say also just, um, you know, I think that you and I have a relationship and a friendship. Um, so just for the listeners who are... Um, you know, tuning in so that they know that um, I know that you love and respect me a lot. And so I know that you're making an effort with my pronouns. And I think for me personally, um, it's really obvious when people are making honest mistakes and when people are intentionally trying to um, misgender or harm you. And so just to say that for me, it feels good when you misgender me and then you notice and correct yourself. And I know for other people like... um, that can be an experience of harm that feels really bad. And, you know, it feels bad to me as well. But um, I feel like we have enough of a rapport that I like can um, see the changes that you've made over the course of our relationship. And it's really meaningful to me. And so, um, yeah, just to say that for some people, I think that um, I guess a lot of this conversation of framing for this conversation, I would is kind of what I'm trying to say is that I'm only speaking from my experience and everyone's going to have um, a different way that they want their community or friends to repair the harm that happens when 
they're misgendered or um, assumptions are being made. And so I think that, um, yeah, just to always be specific to do repair when you do misgender someone that feels healing and um, meaningful to them and not just assume that everyone's going to kind of, some people want you to keep moving and pretend nothing happened and they don't want to talk about it because it feels really awkward or it feels bad. And then other people want you to identify and want you to say, oh, I messed up and like, let me apologize and go back. So I think always like centering their experiences and um, yeah, just trying, trying your best. I think that's a really good point too that I've noticed. Um, and of course it, I can't help but also be reminded sometimes when I see it that it reminds me a little bit of like, white tears and white fragility when when there is an apology, sometimes it's an over-apology to where the person that has done the harm ends up being the center of the conversation again. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I do see that a lot. Sometimes it seems innocent in a way that it's maybe out of embarrassment and there's lots of over-apologizing, but then again, that person is the center mm-hmm. of the whole conversation again. Um, and sometimes it seems like a little bit of a misdirection. So um, maybe just so that our listeners can kind of maybe just check in with themselves sometimes and just be reminded of like when when they may do that also. Because I think we're probably all guilty of that in some capacity in our lives. Um, the other thing that I was going to ask you, and I hope I can remember now you were talking about... Never mind. It's going to come back to me. So let's go ahead and just talk about some language, yeah. um, specifically. Yeah. What? What? Um, what specifically, or which words specifically? I guess. So when we first started talking about this um, a while back, I remember a, a specific conversation that we had where you mentioned to me that it can be really disorienting. Mm. Um. And that aspect had never crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think just to be really specific, because I think with anything that we talk about, especially in the birth community where where we're in the trenches and we understand what's going on, but then we say things that are a little bit more abstract to people who aren't dealing with our direct experiences, they may not know, well, how is it harmful Mm -hmm. or how is it hurtful? You know, people mispronounce my name all the time. Mm-hmm. People call my husband Scott, Scotty sometimes, and he can't stand that. And so maybe can, could you speak to like how that could be? Because I can understand from my perspective, which is completely different, but maybe help people that really just don't have a framework for that kind of understand, first of all, how misgendering can be disorienting and harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um I will say in my experience of seeking out healthcare, sometimes I'll just pretend to be a cis woman because I just want to access certain kinds of healthcare. And so like, I think that that's a strategy that some people will do because it's like, you know that people won't be able to honor who you are or the complexity of who you are. And then I think on the other hand, when you have disclosed to someone um, or shared with them that you're non-binary, or when I share with someone that I'm non-binary, right. I'll say, um, and then they say she or her, it it really takes me out of my experience of embodiment. And mm-hmm. I think that it makes me feel like, sometimes I like will like look around the room, like who are they even talking about? You mm-hmm. know, like it's mm-hmm. so disorienting in that sense where it feels like, 
um, the experience of being a she or her feels so far away from my personal experience that I can't um, really even touch down with them into that like reality that they're conveying. Um, And then I think also there's like that human need to want to be seen and understood by the people that know you. And when people misgender you, for me, it feels like um, really obscuring the complexities of who I am and mm-hmm. um and there's so many layers to that where you're just like sure. obviously maybe I'm too complex to be understood mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe mm-hmm. you know maybe this is a burden for this person to understand and so there can be a lot of those feelings as well but mm-hmm. um yeah I think on a baseline it's like to kind of have your senses about you to have an embodied experience I think it requires a sense of safety and trust and when I get misgendered it kind of cuts through that safety and trust really quickly and then I kind of like go very far away Mm -hmm. in my brain. Okay. Um, And so some other definitions, and I think just just so that our listeners can kind of be a little bit more, um, because this is constantly changing and we're Mm -hmm. fluid people and we're evolving and we're growing. And so words that we may have not used a decade ago even for instance queer mm-hmm. i think it feels like the um the lgbtq community has really taken that back and like given that word power mm-hmm. versus um the way that it had been used for so long and so maybe just words like that too yeah. that like you could help us like this is okay to say this is probably not okay to say this is you know like what uh, what's harmful what's helpful what what do those different terminology, um, I know the answer, but a lot of people may not. Mm -hmm. And especially in in the birth community, this isn't something that we talk about really ever, Yeah, you know? And so help us. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm wearing two hats right now, both as a, I know as a provider, (laughs) no, which is good, which is good. I think, um, my provider brain is saying, um, beyond definitions of things to always use the words that the person is using to describe themselves. So you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. need to know the meaning and definition of everyone's language. Mm -hmm. But if someone identifies as a lesbian, I wouldn't call them queer because that's not the word that they're using and vice versa. And so I think for me, that's, that's always the first, um, that's always my first rule of thumb. Um, and then in terms of queerness, I think, um, For me personally, queerness was an identity that I came to because it felt very expansive. It was an identity that was able to hold both um, my experience of having romantic and sexual attraction to like a variety of bodies and people that Mm -hmm. cut across like lines of um, gender and um, sexuality. And also for me... um, then when I kind of came into my experience of being non-binary, it also was a way that it held the complexity of my identity. And I love that about that word. I think it has this really um, kind of expansive quality to it that can hold so much. Um, And then to me, there's also this political element of queerness, which is also like, you know, pushing back against the way that I think um, queer movements have tried to be co-opted by more, um, you know, like capitalist practices, you know, Mm -hmm. in the way that pride Mm -hmm. is now really dominated by police and 
um, you know, Bank of America has a float in the pride parade. And Mm -hmm. I feel like queer people are really about like, not just really assimilating into, um, cultures that maybe have previously wanted to harm us, but now are kind of giving us kind of like this really tepid welcome. Um, Mm -hmm. It's about kind of building communities that are strong and inclusive and um, intact and kind of allow for the freedom and broadness of people's experiences within that. Um, So that's a word that I love that I know when I first told my mom that word, she was like, isn't that a slur? Like, I don't know if you should say that. And I was like, well, you know, definitely different Like back in the (laughs) 90s when Toby Mac took back um, Jesus Freak and, you know, and a lot of the a lot of the Christian community was like, wait, what? We're not freaks. And he was like, yeah, we are. And so I saw that be, you know, adopted just fine and dandy. Uh And so I think that, um, I think that maybe the same rules can apply. Yeah. 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 And I think that, um, again, like that word doesn't work for all people. It just Mm -hmm. is a word that made sense to me because I, um, yeah, I, touched down in a lot of different identities before I got to queerness. And that was the one that has always just made me feel, um, uh, yeah, feel at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in terms of me identifying as a trans person and a non-binary person, um, what I mean by that is like my gender identity and expression of gender exists outside of a binary. I think a lot of times people think of being non-binary as like, half man, half woman or something like in between. But for me, it means that like um, my experience of gender doesn't, um, doesn't exist in the spectrum Mm -hmm. of, or it doesn't exist in the binary uh, Mm -hmm. camps of woman or man. And that can mean a lot of different things. I think that sometimes my gender is confusing to people because I can present very femme. And so being someone who's assigned female at birth and being femme, I think people are like, well, that means you're a woman. Right. But um, I love the, I like, it's both something that I um, play with in terms of my presentation. Like being non-binary means like I like to be femme, but I also like to like, I have facial hair and I, will wear lipstick and like have a mustache and it's very disorienting, but also that um, it's not just about presentation. It's also about like internally for me. I remember talking to a friend and being like, everyone's kind of like failing at being a woman, right? Like no one actually feels like they're like successfully being a woman. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I do. Like, I think I'm, I feel that feels good to me. Like it's working for me. And I was like, oh, (laughs) interesting. But I also think there's this like cultural experience where womanhood is a thing that is aspirational because mm. it sells us a lot of products and you want to get the makeup and the da 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 da, da. Sure. so yeah and historically there's are there's been so many expectations that have been very heteronormative uh-huh. expectations on what a woman should be and yeah what and that steeped look like. in white supremacy like much, you have yeah, to be a white sure. woman and it's going to be you're going to be the and fat phobia and all these things where yeah. it's like to be a woman is to be yeah. in this very narrow um definition and so I think both my experience of being non-binary was I felt like being a woman couldn't um like I, I was always going to be failing at it. And so I was like, well, I choose a different thing. But also mm-hmm. I think the experience of like, I kind of liked being a gender rebel for a long time where I was just like, I'm a woman and I have a mustache. So like yeah. make that fit. And exactly. you know, it's always just yeah. for me, it's, it can be a playful thing. 
This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is Preg Your Pardon's favorite podcast growth and distribution platform. And the best part, it's free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, maybe you should consider Anchor. If you're interested, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, you can download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On the right days. Well, and you've, <laughs> you've kind of hit on this, but just to like say it, you know, pretty bluntly. So someone who identifies as trans is not someone who has all, always gone through a transition mm-hmm. as far as like what um, I think a lot of us were kind of raised to believe that that meant like yeah. surgery and hormones and all the things mm-hmm. like that's not probably even the majority of people that identify as trans. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know in terms of like statistics, but I think that that's correct. Like I feel like this trans, um, the word trans, I feel like always gives this impression that you're going somewhere mm-hmm. here. And um, I think it's, yeah, it's really just like the experience of not having your gender identity align with what your assigned sex is at birth. And so like that can be just your day-to-day experience or it can mean that you're going to like make changes or choices in your life to like access gender, um, like hormonal therapy or surgeries or a whole variety, like changing your um, attire. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean like someone isn't like successfully trans when they like switch poles and right. go from being a woman to a man or right. present and a that's, switch that's just turned on yeah. exactly and yeah. that's meaningful for some people that's how they experience gender euphoria and like that's how they feel mm-hmm. best in their bodies is when they present in a way that um you know is passing as like a um cisgendered person um but then for a lot of people okay. it's, it's not that okay yeah. perfect so i think we've covered the at least the definitions and the acronym. Mm-hmm. We haven't really touched on the plus part, but we may have time to do that or unless there's anything else that you want to talk about as far as definitions. And then we can just kind of jump into the birth part. Yeah, I think those are at least the definitions that are personal to me. So I feel like maybe I'm, I'll am i stick Perfect. to what I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So then how did you find yourself getting into this profession. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to ask you your birth philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that fun? Um, But how did you end up getting into the birth profession? Like what led you down that road? Yeah, gosh, I feel like maybe you have this experience as well, but I have like 10 different stories Mm -hmm. and depending on the day, they all feel um, Mm -hmm. alive or relevant. But um, I'm trying to think which one feels the most the simple answer is birth work seems to be was like very early on the only job that I felt like I knew how to do or that made sense Mm -hmm. to me no other job Mm -hmm. I could really understand how people (laughs) did it um but also I I've always had um pretty strong feelings about the way that um 
all the violence that exists in our culture and trying to create a world in which people could be like safer and um, create intact or like support people having intact communities and intact families. And, um, and then just like on learning about the statistics of um, the black maternal mortality and morbidity rates. I, I remember first encountering that when I was like 22 and being really shocked and horrified and, um, feeling like, you know, birth felt like this place where so many different things intersected. It felt like this is where race and class and gender and all these things are kind of meeting. And can we, can I carve out a space where, um, there can be safety for people Mm -hmm. and so that they can give birth to babies and raise them how they want to raise them. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were the um, the academic or non-academic paths that you chose to to get where you're at right now? Mm, yeah. I, and was that harder for you um, just in this like traditional cisgendered world or, or did that feel, did any of those aspects feel different mm, also? Like, so from the educational yeah. standpoint, are there some... Are there some gaps there too? Yeah. Um, I uh, I was a doula first and then I went to midwifery school. And I only started identifying as being non-binary and trans about four years ago. And so at that point, it was after I had graduated okay. midwifery school. But I was such a good ally <laughs> yes. in midwifery school. And I, I remember we were learning about... It was like human anatomy or something. And I I think I started crying because this person was saying very transphobic things and I was so distraught about it. And um, so, yeah, I think there's ways. I mean, even you and I were talking about this, like when I read texts now to do research about something and everything is like really gendered about being like, and then the woman will give birth and the woman will do this. Like I need to, for me, that's always a barrier to accessing mm-hmm. information. Um, in terms of my like early education, I was, no, I felt like um, there's so many queer people in birth work. So I felt very, like that's how I made some of my best friends. Um, and it's been really lovely. Um, but as you know, becoming a midwife is kind of just like a gauntlet <laughs> experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So in many ways, it probably was colored by my identities, but also it's just a hard path. It is, yeah. To 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 go down. Yeah. Yeah. So the next sort like the next topic that I kind of want to talk about, I guess you may um need to put your provider hat on more or so. Yeah. Um so although obviously queer and trans families at times would build their families in the exact same way that cisgendered families would. They also have to rely on fertility options and care um, that cisgendered families don't have to rely on. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, like like what those options are that some of our listeners may not even be, have to even think about or, mm-hmm. you know, consider. Um, and then maybe we can talk about, you know, how easily those are to access um, and what some ways that maybe we can bridge that gap in the birth community. Yeah. Um, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is um, the 
the fact that a lot of um, queer people need to access fertility treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's like not because they aren't fertile. It's just because the way to get the sperm to the ovum is requires like either um, intrauterine insemination mm-hmm. or something that um, is actually a skill that like both you and I provide right. um, and is quite accessible. But I think because of the way insurance works and all these things work, they will, it gets escalated to um, more complex like medical intervention sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've just seen people who are, you know, they're not necessarily, there's no indication that they aren't fertile, but because they're seeking out IUI and treated insemination mm-hmm. with pregnancy, they're treated as though they have fertility issues and mm-hmm. put on hormones and all these things. And, and that intersects with also queer and trans people who statistically like make less money and have less access to resources. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that there's sometimes is this, um, those things can be competing where right. like both some of our ways of getting pregnant are more costly and we have fewer access, like right. less access to those resources. Because even the time frame mm. to, um, to fertilize is very, there's a very tiny little window. And especially if you're having to use sperm that's not, you know, in your own home and your partner's body or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that may be time off work, travel time, costs that are associated with that. Like from the limited experience that I have, that's what I've seen yeah. be the, you know, one of the biggest barriers. Um, what other, are there any myths that you've noticed that that surround, like for instance, testosterone, you know, um, affecting fertility or breastfeeding or uh-huh. um, like just myths and dangerous norms and things like that, that you've yeah. seen that, you know, as a provider that we can start to maybe debunk and mm-hmm. and not really allow into our practices as much. Yeah. I think, I mean, the first and biggest myth is that like queer families are a new phenomenon, you know, like queer okay, people yeah. have been, we've been making families and make family in so many different and creative ways and always have like trans people have always existed. Queer families have always existed. And um, I, I think for me as a, you know, a home birth based person and an herbalist based person, I think um, these are all practices that actually we can support each other in accessing and it doesn't always have to be a really complex medical inf- intervention to get pregnant. And that mm-hmm. feels like um, one thing that I wish people like knew more that actually like IUI is something you can do in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cost effective ways of like getting sperm. There's ways that you can, may- maybe not from a bank, but like you mm-hmm. can, you know, if you have a, a f- generous friend. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that comes to mind. I think also um, one thing that I've encountered as a person seeking medical care is sometimes people ask questions that feel more prying than relevant to my healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as midwives, we want to get thorough health histories. But if you find yourself asking questions that are just out of curiosity rather than something that's specific to this person's um, clinical picture, I think you need to like take a pause and consider. And you say, pray your pardon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, because sometimes people are just being um, nosy and, you know, and so I think that that's something people should be investigating. Um, a lot of our listeners may be used to that part, at least, being 
well, I don't know if a lot of our listeners are going to be um, home birth families or not, but that's something that I think a lot of home birth families mm. just in general have to deal with. You know, it's like this, the same histories would apply whether you're having a hospital birth or an out-of-hospital birth, but it seems like the questions always get a lot more personal about cleanup and bedrooms and placentas and like, how come you're not asking my neighbor who just had a hospital birth those questions? So I I understand from a different perspective, but it kind of seems like, yeah, sometimes we can we can go a little too far with our questioning and, and get a little bit more nosy than necessary so yeah yeah which is the whole point of this podcast is why I started it yeah we can I be nosy on the podcast your party, like <laughs> a million times to people. yeah um I feel like we kind of touched on this too in terms of language but also in terms of like um just always really reflecting back like how people the terms they want to use for both their body but also as parents like do they identify as being a parent or do they identify as being a mom or a dad? And like mm-hmm. just really honoring that. Um, knowing that people might have different family structures, which I think, you know, in the United States, we have this like really solid nuclear family thing that doesn't seem to be working that well, where everyone's right. like isolated alone in their houses. And I think that one way, um, you know, there's so many different ways to arrange your family. Sometimes it's intergenerational. There's like a grandparent living at home, but I think... You know, some queer people, they have chosen family that's going to be just so important. And I think uplifting those relationships Mm -hmm. um, and not thinking like, oh, well, you're not a spouse. And so therefore you're secondary in this parenting equation. Like Mm -hmm. some people just like are going to parent with their friends. They're going to parent, you know, and that's not Mm -hmm. specific to queerness necessarily. But I think that um, there's a way that queer people maybe... um, it's happening more frequently or mm-hmm. are modeling that. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that we can learn from the way that queer people support e- our, each other in community that I think like really the world probably needs a little bit of that, the way we show up for each other. I think mm-hmm. it's, we're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> well, and I've, I've often been really surprised by the confusion or supposed confusion, especially by some medical professionals when it comes to... Um, how to address someone even, you know, so with the birth of social media, you know, you see a lot of things in writing and you see how it like, how it translates. And there's a big, um, seems like that there's a lot more like mama this and hey mommy and calling people names that they didn't ask to be called. You Mm -hmm. know, I personally don't really like when a stranger calls me mama, hey mama. I mean, I have three children and they can call me that, but I don't, necessarily identify that way when I'm talking to a colleague. Mm. And so um, I've, I've been surprised by the supposed confusion by that because basic nursing school 101 was like, call people what they want to be called. I mean, that was like kind of a thing back then. And I think it's always been taught that way. So mm-hmm. I don't know why that's so confusing now all of a sudden when we're talking about a marginalized community while we have to make like this big deal about it and act like they are asking us to like do these like heroic things when it's just basic, like it's the basic way we were taught to care for people in our profession. So, And I think midwifery care specifically is so well situated for that. We pride ourselves on personalized care. That's like our calling card is that we are going to be so specific to you. And I think that that's to me, a big heartache in this space is when I'm like, we're the ones who are like 
offering all the options and getting into the nitty gritty. And then when it comes down to this person's basic identity, you're going to throw aside the the most fundamental principle of midwifery mm-hmm. care, which is personalized care. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I think that just, um, I don't know, I had to have a learning curve around like, getting people's pronouns right. And just because I'm non-binary and trans doesn't mean I automatically get that information downloaded into my brain, you know, but um, it's, it was work, but I was able to do it. And I think that when people feel like it's too hard, I would just ask them to question of that thing where I'm like, if you can remember their blood type, if you can remember their preferences mm-hmm. around vitamin K, if you can remember all these things, like you can probably remember what they want to be called and how they want to be addressed. Like, right. Right. And even if some of it is habit, um, we have a lot of bad habits that we can, you know, maybe, I mean, I, you know, I've lived in the South my whole life and people say ain't, I mean, you know, like you can condition yourself not to do that. (laughs) Um, And I also think that maybe a little bit of it is ego, embarrassment, there's this hierarchy of, you know, I'm the provider and this person is a patient. And so if I mess up, then I can't say like, oh, dang, I just messed up. Let me correct this. Instead, I'm going to double down Mm. and like act like it's just this huge ordeal and I'm so confused. And, you know, so I see a little bit of that too. Do you you see that? Is that, yeah, I think does that that seem to be your... Yeah, I think that it's it's like one of the ways that midwifery has taken on some of the um, negative aspects of the medical industrial complex where I'm like, we aren't, I think that what I love about midwifery care is like, I don't have to be the person that holds all the knowledge in mm-hmm. the way that I think doctors have to mm-hmm. be because of the way that power dynamic works. They have to be the one that knows everything. I feel like midwives we have the space to be full, complex human beings with our clients. We don't mm-hmm. want to center ourselves necessarily in the relationship, but I also think I'm very willing to admit when I don't know an, a lot about a certain area. And so I don't see why this is like any different. And um, and also just knowing like, you know, if you want to provide trauma-informed care, if you want to say that you're someone who's like, trans competent that also means that, or even if you don't want to say those things, if you want a client who's able to like be present with you and embodied in your relationship, then you need to honor who they are because otherwise if you're, if they're, if they're anything like me, they're going to be dissociated. And if, mm-hmm. if any, if there's any providers out there, it's very hard to work with someone when they're a million miles away mm-hmm. and to maintain safety and all the things that we're trying to do. Well, and you just hit on the, on the biggest word for me is safety mm-hmm. because whether or not you, you consider yourself an ally or, you know, a helper or just someone who is committed to anti-harm practices, even if you want to step out of that for whatever reason, Bottom line is you're just not going to be able to give the safest level of care if you can't if you can't identify with that person the way they want to be identified with. Absolutely. I mean because of all the reasons that you've already stated but also because you can't really connect with who they really are. Mm-hmm. Um I've personally seen someone disassociate during during labor and it can be really dangerous. Um, they disassociated because of trauma, but I can I can definitely see how um, the way that I practice, if I wasn't intentional about some of the things that we've talked about, how that could really cause you know a disorienting place for someone 
to give lay, you know, to to give birth and to feel safe and to feel um, empowered and all the things that we say we mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole reason why we we supposedly want to practice in a model where we're taking someone out of a setting that they may define as you know, triggering and sterile and full of people that they don't know and unsafe and, you know, into a, a setting that's that's safer for them. Then if we're the ones that are bringing unsafe practices, that seems a little bit contradictory, a little bit hypocritical. So I don't think you have to be, you know, completely, you know, averse in all the things that we're talking about and, and, and and maybe that's part of it. Maybe there's an insecurity where some providers just feel like they can't adopt some of these practices because they don't understand. And mm. so maybe there's some confusion there. Um, but that part has really been perplexing for me yeah. because bottom line safety, I just don't see, it doesn't make sense to me how we can say that we're, um, that we're honoring all of the things that, you know, we're supposed to be kind of standing guard and, and holding space for, if we can't even, if we can't even honor the most basic ones. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that, um, again, I just think midwifery care, there's so much possibility in it because like a silly example is I had this, um, I knew this person, he was trans and pregnant and he, was going through the Kaiser system. And because of the way their computer system was set up, he couldn't be both have a male identity marker and be pregnant because it like short wired their system, you know, like just the way their program was set up. And so they were trying to just for his pregnancy, change his identity marker back to female, which was, he was like, no, like, that's, you know, can't do not do that. But they, there was this way that it seemed like they're like, oh, well, it's just a computer thing. Like it's no big deal. But to him, it's like to honor his identity, to be a full and complex person in that space. Um, You know, I think as midwives, like we don't have these complex (laughs) computer systems that short circuit when they come into information that is, that describes who this person is. We can hold all of that. And I think that that's something I would just really invite our community into more and more is like understanding that we don't have to replicate the models that we see in the hospital. We can actually create a different space for people. And I think that's what most people are trying to do. But I, I think this is one area that there's so much untapped possibility in the midwifery community mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. specifically. And also just, it just comes down to like, again, the safety piece. Like for, I'll give a personal example. I was having someone take a health history on me and they were asking me, they were trying to gauge my risk of, you know, tr- transmission of STIs and pregnancy and all that. And they were like, so um, are you dating a man or a woman? And I was dating a trans man at the time. And so I was I was like, well, I'm not going to, I want you to know that my risk of pregnancy is low. Right. <laughs> but this person, like the, the information they were trying to get was not going to come through the questions they were asking. Right, and so right. I think that that's also part of it is like, be specific mm-hmm. with your language. Don't use euphemisms when what you're trying to find out is like, what is your exposure to this thing? Right. Just name it in the same way, like we were talking about with like mama and all that, like your person giving birth, that's the, to me, that's the most accurate way to describe what's going on in your life in this moment, or you're a person who's parenting and you're, and when we use specific language, it allows people to both like define their experience, but also like as providers get the information we're looking for. And so I think it's just like a win, win. 
So that perfectly segues into um, my next question, and you've kind of already even answered this a little bit, but um, just surrounding gender-affirming care. So first, can you kind of talk about what gender-affirming care is for someone listening who maybe this is that's the first time that they've heard that term, and then specifically what that means in the birth community? Mm. Yeah, Um Gender-affirming care to me means having no expectations around the kind of genitalia someone has and what their gender is. So mm-hmm. having every client come in and um, assuming that I know nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. right. and allowing that um, that identity to be built throughout our rapport and the person articulating who they are. Um, I feel like that's kind of a complicated way of restating what we've been saying, which is right. just like let a person define themselves and, you know, follow their lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also for me comes down to like um, explaining things in gender neutral terms so that people can access that information. Like I said, it's a big barrier for me when I see only women, um, only the word women and like educational information. I just, right. it shuts down a part of my brain. Um, so I think that feels gender affirming to me. Um, yeah, I think also just like knowing that people get to change and shift to like, it's always nice. I love checking in on my friends like, hey, what pronouns are you using today? Even if it's someone yeah. I talk to all the time, I'm like, who are you today? Because like you said, we're fluid people. We're going to keep evolving. Right. And knowing that the experience of pregnancy and parenting can sometimes cause a uh, a shift in how someone relates to their gender and sexuality and identity and to hold space for that as well. I think I'll say one more thing, which is also like, it's okay if you don't know everything as a provider, none of us know everything and also having good referrals because I've just had experiences with people who want or like maybe have an aspiration of being trans inclusive, but they actually aren't. And just like having Mm -hmm. an honest assessment of your own skills and like practices and knowing that we're all in a, you know, it's, it's a process for everyone, but like, don't promise something that you can't deliver because that feels really bad as a, as a person seeking care. Well, and and so that, that kind of leads into my next um, kind of sub question. But um, so in the context of gender affirming care, like you, you just mentioned an example about um, like a lot of birth education being very, you know, woman, mom type language. So that's a really specific practical way that, I mean, I myself have made those changes in my own practice. Um, Are there other things, other ways that you can think of specifically, like maybe just baby steps that a Mm. provider could, you know, like three or four little baby steps that providers could, could take to maybe be more gender open and start to like adopt a more um, non-assumptive practice when it comes to gender and language? Are there other things that you could, you know, because for me, it's just really been helpful for me over the years to have really honest people in my life, um, you know, clients and friends and you and people who have said, hey, what about if we don't, you know, use that word? What about if we... Um, you know, 
if we communicate in this other certain way? Or what about if you don't make this assumption about my partner? Or what about, you know, just Mm -hmm. being really honest with me has been the most helpful for me. Um, So anything like that that we could maybe like start to say like, hey, you know, from a practical standpoint, I love when people tell me like, general rules and ideas, but then it's also really helpful to say like from a practical standpoint, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that you kind of touched on a thing, which is that you are in relationship with queer and trans people and you're someone who is open to feedback and is trustworthy. And I think just like as a baseline, that's kind of where people need to start Mm. is like, being in relationship with queer people, not to like extract knowledge from us, but just to like authentically sure. be in relationship with us right. and um, and then be willing to take feedback when we offer it. I feel like that feels maybe the beginning, but if you you know are in whatever community where you're not necessarily encountering queer people, um, not only language around identities, but around anatomy and body parts, I think is really important. So saying chest feeding or body feeding instead of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can be specific. I feel like people hear that and then they're like, but I can't say breastfeeding. It's like, well, if your client's saying breastfeeding, say breastfeeding. But if this sure. person's saying body feeding, say body feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe offering that in spaces where people, because I think sometimes it's nice to like offer language and then people are like, ooh, that works for me. Like, I like mm-hmm. that. I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it. Um outside of like a gendered experience. Same thing with like, um, you know, you can say vagina, you can say vulva. Sometimes people like front hole and back hole because Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a gendered connotation to it. So just knowing that there's like a lot of language that um, people are using that uh, to be open to hearing that. Um, Dang it. See, I feel like we're going to miss the whole I feel like vulva is going to be missed from history because <laughs> we've been skipping over vulva for so long yes. anyway and calling the whole thing vagina. Mm-hmm. And now it may have another opportunity to kind of get, get missed. It's I okay. Think, I'm just like, going to be a champion for the vulva I in my own I say vulva a lot. I will say, I'm, yeah, I think maybe that's, the, that's our midwife uh, roots coming out because, yeah, I will say vulva and to the point that I think I'm making people uncomfortable at the dog park where I'm sure. just like, oh, my dog's vulva. They did it. And they're like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wolves are great. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other like baby steps. Oh, one thing that um, a friend does that I love is when um, a friend of theirs changes pronouns when they're like grocery shopping and in the car and by themselves, they'll just use like that person's either new name or new pronouns and just say sentences out loud to like become more comfortable. I've heard people do that with their dogs or your cat. Just try out they, Mm -hmm. try out a new pronoun and just kind of like get in the flow of saying that word for an individual. So I think that that's like a nice- um, The way we would practice somebody's name if it was hard to pronounce uh over and over again. Exactly. You know, it kind of sounds like what you're saying, Francis, is that- we could maybe take steps to adopt more patient-centered, client-centered, person-centered care versus provider-centered care, mm. which I feel like is what we say we do anyway. Mm-hmm. But then, I, 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 anyway, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, but when, when this particular issue comes up, it's like we just throw our hands up in the air and we're like so confused and we don't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. So because it sounds like in in all of these examples, it's just, hey, 
let's talk to the person and find out how they want to be communicated with. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like one of the things I love about being a midwife is seeing the multitude of ways people parent Mm -hmm. and create family. And like, Mm -hmm. even within, you know, straight people, the way people parent is so vastly different. Mm -hmm. And that's delightful to me. Like human variation and all of that is delightful for me to me. And like, not all of it is something that I'm going to do in my own home, but like, that doesn't mean I can't just like take a perspective of gratitude to be like, cool, that's the way you live. Like, that's amazing. I Mm -hmm. love that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just think the reality is that like right now there's so many, just atrocious bills coming through. Black trans women are being murdered in the United States at a rate so, so high compared to every other identity group. And there's a real experience of vulnerability and danger. And, you know, I have a certain identity that makes my experience oftentimes uncomfortable, but not that often dangerous. And so I also just want to like uplift the fact that there's a lot of people who like, I'm glad that we're having this conversation and also, um, trans people don't always have the capacity to like be super patient with you because they're literally fighting for their lives Mm -hmm. and trying Mm -hmm. to just live. And so I think that if you can like cultivate a little bit of patience, especially if you are someone who's a healthcare provider, who's Mm -hmm. supposed to be providing care, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just to know that like, if someone's not instructing you in a way that sounds kind to you, it might be because they've been misgendered so many times that day that they like actually don't have the capacity to Mm -hmm. like offer that generosity and maybe like Mm -hmm. just, you know, your own self-soothing tools that you need to do to like be like, Ooh, that was a little harsher than I wanted it to be. But that's because Mm -hmm. like this person's actually like hit their limit and that's okay. Like we can't be the best educators all the time. Well, thank you for that. That, that hits home for me um, on several levels, but I really appreciate you being so honest about that because that really makes a lot of sense to me. And um, and I can I can I, I can definitely see again, you know, just from a perspective of even someone who's gone through like a tremendous amount of grief and and loss, like not having the capacity to explain things to people really makes a lot of sense to me. And I can see how if that's like day in and day out your experience, how that would be very exhausting. And, um, you know, maybe we could all help bear that burden a little bit. So thank you for offering that. Um, So we have talked about maybe from a provider aspect, how we can take some baby steps. What about the birth community in general, you know, talking about, we kind of touched on um, CBE literature and um, breastfeeding, chest feeding language, but just in general, you know, um, I know I have some specific areas where I feel like we could do a better job when it comes to like hosting groups and events and different things like that. But can you speak to that a little bit about just the birth community in general, midwives, doulas, educators, lactation support professionals, nurses, um, you know, how we can as a community take more realistic steps out of some of our more assumptive models mm. um, and and kind of adopt some of these more um, just engaging and safe models of even just getting together as a group? Yeah. Um, I love the... Um, 
what you said earlier about not identifying everyone as a mama in Instagram posts, that seems more and more prevalent. Um, pronoun checks at the beginning of um, any type of meeting is really nice. I think also we talked about, you know, don't only do pronoun checks just when the trans people are there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that gets into this idea that like cis people are the default and we're the kind of like outliers. And so actually like your experience of being cis is just as random as my experience of being trans. <laughs> and so Great point. the fact yeah. that you, that lines up for you is like also worth noting in mm-hmm. because um, yeah. So I think doing pronoun checks, um, I think, Again, I feel like I've maybe said this already, but just taking honest and realistic um, account of where you're at in your process of becoming more trans and queer literate because um, it's nice to be aspirational. But if you're like, oh, I actually don't feel like I'm the right provider, knowing who to refer to, I think Mm -hmm. is a huge part. I think, you know, there's a lot of groups of people that like I want to support, but maybe I'm not the right person to support them. And so I want to be able to say like, you should seek out this person there. They share the same identity as you or they have more expertise than you. And I think, again, that's like an ego thing for providers is that like, we're not always going to be the right person for everybody and that's Mm -hmm. okay. And knowing when to refer, I think is huge, especially in this moment where we're like, a lot of things can happen online. And so even if there's not someone down the road from you, there might be someone on the world wide web. (laughs) So that really actually leads to an interesting question, an interesting point. Um, It's not one that I had thought to ask. And so I'm trying to figure out how to frame it up um, in the most polite way that I can, not towards you, but toward the community um, at times. But so where where I've lived my whole life, where we live right now, um, is often referred to as the Bible Belt. And in, in this community... It's the only one I've ever worked in, so I can't really, I don't have a comparison, but um, I know that there are a lot of instances since I've been working in the birth community for now, going all the way back to nursing school and doula work and everything has been 22 years. Um, I've seen a lot of instances where providers um, will kind of practice under this label of like a ministry or a calling or um, kind of in a way that sort of takes licensure out of the of the equation and allows them to um, practice in just, I mean, bluntly, a little bit more discriminatory ways. So the families that they chose to, to attend to and the ones that they don't. And so hearing you talk about knowing when to refer out versus flat out discriminating against a family and saying, you know, the ministry that I currently, I don't know, own or run or I don't know how you, I don't know the label that you call it when you have a ministry versus a practice. But, um, you know, I can't take your family on versus I don't have the skill set to take your family on and I'm going to refer you to someone else. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I asked a question. Yeah. But there seems to be I a difference s- there. Yeah. And there seems to be room for maybe growth in one area where like, shoot, I don't have the skill set to help you in the way that I want to help you safely. I wish that I did. And I'm going to get on that right away and figure out how to do that so that the next person that calls me, I can. But I don't versus... I have a ministry and you don't fit into my 
ministry yeah. or whatever. I'm not sure exactly how they say it, but I know it's said. So can you speak to that a little bit and like the difference and yeah. how we can maybe like, you know, differentiate? Sure, yeah. Um, again, in case it's not obvious, these are all my personal opinions. And mine. <laughs> but as, a, as someone seeking healthcare, I would want to know if I'm outside of your ministry. Like, I don't think it's a good practice. I think maybe those folks need to do some soul searching. Um, but I also wouldn't want someone who's who thinks that my identity goes against their ministry accept me into care as a client. Like, I'm kind of, I, I feel grateful when people are upfront that they do not care for me because then I know that I can go somewhere else. Because if think, someone doesn't care for you, they can't care for exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's like, it's, um, that's like a, at that point, it's not about me and that's just between them and their God. And so- they And can, their ministry. They can figure that out. But I do think the issue comes in when like you're in an environment where there's nowhere else to go. And so I think that that also comes down to like you and I as um, people that can train people to like center black midwives, center queer midwives, really put our efforts into skilling them up so that- um, if that one person says no, we are like, great. There's all these other people that we can refer you to that are wonderful. Um, because yeah, I think that, um, I don't think that's a good practice, but it's an honest practice in a way, which I guess counts for something. Um, in terms of just like not knowing, you know, not feeling skilled at anything. I think again, like being upfront with clients, like I'll be really clear with people. I'm like, that's not an identity I share. You know, I'm a white person. And so when I work with people of color, I'm like, I'm not a person of color. And so I'm do my best to be anti-racist. And, um, and also like we need black midwives in Nashville and in the United States, like we need so many more. And, mm -hmm. um, there's so many barriers to, um, to people of color seeking out care with people that share that identity with them. And so I think that just like, you know, it's both about us getting skills and also about like giving away like the space that we <laughs> occupy sometimes of being mm -hmm. like, yeah, I don't have to be this person's care provider and there's someone else who would do a better job. No matter how skillful I get at it, like I'm just never going to have that identity. And so I might never be the right person. Um but yeah, I think it comes down a lot to access and we live in a specific place where like, you know, there's not a ton of queer providers. Like I came from Oakland, California, where it felt like there's like just so many midwives and- It, it accurately represented who was seeking care uh -huh. versus- mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And even maybe a little more of <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. queer midwives than there were queer people because gotcha. there were yeah. just so many. Right. Um, so I think that- um, Yes, that that's just like, you know, also comes from like the experience of midwifery being outlawed and all these things in the United mm -hmm. States where we kind of like have been pushed to the margins a little bit. And so I think that that also makes us people that can be in great alignment with people that have been pushed to the margins. It's like natural allies. So in your kind of wildest imagination type thing, how how would you see the most ideal gender affirming birth community. Mm. I know that you've you've mentioned um, a few things, you know, and I think access is probably a big issue. Like, so there's barriers. What are those specific barriers besides say maybe there's not enough professionals um, who 
identify or know how to communicate, you know, with the skill set. But what other barriers are there? How do we how do we bridge those gaps? How do we mm-hmm. get past those barriers? And then what does that ideal community look like? Yeah. Um, I think that that to me comes down to, you know, queer people um, oftentimes living in poverty and are at the experience of um, queer people and people with low income being criminalized and the way that that like divides communities or makes it so that people don't want to parent. Um, I feel like that's a huge systemic barrier, which I think will only come with like prison abolition and, um, you know, creating intact communities where people feel like I want to be a parent because like, I feel like I can parent and will be supported in that. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's a bit, bit of a broader strokes thing. But, um, I do think that like, you know, when you're living your life in a really precarious way, like the idea of parenting for me personally feels extremely overwhelming and, you know, it's not super, um, it doesn't feel, um, appealing necessarily. Um, but yeah, I think in my ideal world, I picture, um, really interdependent families who are like having their postpartum time with, other people and they're not just like isolated alone in their house and their communities are around them and they have ample time off of work where they can actually just like, um, relax, maybe relax isn't the right word. Um, (laughs) uh, ease into the experience of parenting exist and are being provided food. You know, it's like the same thing I want for all my clients where it's just like, um, you're, the demands of capitalism aren't outweighing the demands of like your family life and um, you're being provided food and you don't have to always like do everything by yourself. And there's a care provider that comes and checks on you. And then when that care provider leaves, there's a neighbor who comes and checks on you. And Mm -hmm. that's what I want for my clients as a care provider is like I leave and I know that someone else is going to come up and take over my role. And then a person's not just going to be like alone and Mm -hmm. having to figure it out for themselves. And I think that these are just... um, I always turn to the queer community because I think that, again, we've modeled the way that interdependence looks because we have to. And um, I think that there's a way that queer people know how to show up for each other in really deep and meaningful ways um, that relies on um, the relationships that exist just beyond the bounds of your own home. But um, yeah, it's it's what I want for everybody, just like to have that loving support to know that you can like have the full experience of being um, a pregnant person or a postpartum person, which can be hard and wonderful and all the things, but that you'll be like held in it and held down in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, it already is a very isolating time, especially in the West, the way that we just, the way that we view pregnancy and birth and the postpartum period can be very isolating. Mm-hmm. It's not very cultural. We don't have a lot of traditions and um, generational practices that revolve around that here in the West. Um, and so it can already be isolating. And I can imagine that if you're if you identify in a way that's additionally isolating to that, then that can just compound that isolation, which can also increase your risk of lots of things. I mean, mm. infection and mental health disorders and addiction and, and just 
yeah. so on and so on. So yeah, I'm thinking like mommy groups, you know, I'm like, I don't know, it's a pandemic. I don't know if mommy groups are still happening, but just like, yeah, I would never go to a mommy group, but I also know mommy groups are the places that a lot of my sister's friends have saw, have found community right. in those really, cause you just need someone else who has like a three, six week old baby and like to sit next to you and like breastfeed and freak right. out, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that's a good point. And so see, even just simple things like that, that we could maybe just tweak our models a little bit mm-hmm. um, just to be more inviting so that already marginalized, isolated people aren't just compounded with that in, yeah. in a world where, you know, those resources do exist, but they just can't access them because of how they're framed up or maybe where they exist or, yeah. you know, how how challenging that it may be logistically to get there and then even just to stay in the space. Yeah. Yeah. And the staying in the space, I think, is a huge part because I think that, you know, we saw this with like the Black Lives Matter movement where people changed their mission statements, but they didn't change the culture of the spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that applies. Like you can't just change your language and expect me to come in and feel comfortable with actually you've done nothing to like change the way you're going to treat me or your own stuff. And it's really obvious. Well, sometimes it's not, sometimes I wish it was more obvious, but it's like, we don't want to bait people into thinking they're in a safe space when they're not. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's also important is like, there has to be both a shift in language, I think does part of that, but also like, um, if your culture is steeped in like heteronormativity, then I'm still not going to feel mm-hmm. spaciousness to like relax into that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, yeah, or like, you know, what, whatever, like in the same way that I think cultures that are steeped in white supremacy, you can't just say we're anti-racist and like all of your practices are actually like upholding white supremacist values. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about recruitment, it's about like people wanting to stay, wanting to stick around. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with trying to differentiate between how to determine if you just don't have the skill set for a, per, a particular client or if you're discriminating mm-hmm. against that client. And so not wanting just to bait someone in to your practice because you want to try or and then it not be safe because you really don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So that makes a lot of sense to me that that could still happen even in just really innocent, you know, just postpartum people getting together with mm-hmm. their children and the whole space not feeling safe or comfortable or, you know, and, and causing even a more, a higher stress response in a person who's supposed to be healing and recovering from birth can be really counterproductive to sit there and, and feel even more alone than you did before you left your house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a bad feeling to like want to be seen or expecting community mm-hmm. and to be, even like, ooh, I'm more excluded than I even felt when I was just And even at that home. small step, I feel like that's something that's that would be easy for people who wanted to to make that tiny little modification in mm-hmm. some of these models. Um, yeah. because that doesn't even take a certification or a license or anything. It just requires like a willingness to just to be um, just to be open and mm-hmm. communicate in the way that people want to be communicated. With. Yeah. And I think also for providers to connect their queer, trans, LGBTQ plus clients with each other, like 
I, I feel like we have this experience with like home birth people where they're like, I don't know any other person that's ever given birth at home. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I know so many people that have given birth at home and we can be sometimes that point of contact with permission and HIPAA compliance and all that. Like, right. yeah. like hey, I know this other queer couple who's also parenting right now. Would you like me to introduce them? And yeah. um, because we, I think sometimes become the access, access point of all that. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to my last question too. Do you know of... Um, any resources that exist for um, for families who you know who really want to find birth specific resources that apply to them, mm-hmm. um, you know, queer trans families that aren't just so. From my perspective, it seems like those still exist only under like a tab of a tab or a hyperlink inside of a huge paragraph that you have to try to read and understand. Like I don't, I, I even as a provider who really has tried to commit to a lot of these practices, find it really hard to sit down and navigate where to go um, to find those resources. So if I'm trying to give resources to a client, sometimes that can be really challenging. So are there places that we can further our, you know, further this conversation and get more resources. Um, yeah. And I guess if not, why? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's, um, I would say that that we're a resource. So I'm sure that this information will be in show notes, but people can always reach out to me. Yes. I'm very passionate about herbalism and getting queer people pregnant. I want to help you do that and also get our IUI skills and offerings to the community. Um the my friend Ash does a really really wonderful trans inclusive just brilliant childbirth education. Um, they're online at um, Embodied Birth. That's their Instagram, and okay. I, um, yeah, they're just very, yeah, Embodied Period Birth. Um, it's a birth class, and um, yeah, specific for queer and trans people. And it's nice because I think childbirth ed you know, that kind of matches you up with people who are due along the same timeline as you. And so then you can maybe find people that you're going to like keep being able to be in relationship with, with like all those parenting things. Um, there's, um, there's like a fertility person that I love and intersectional fertility on Instagram. They do. Yeah. If you're struggling with fertility, they are a great reference point. Um, also, um, Moss the Doula is great. Moss is great. And they go by Moss the Doula, I think, on all social media platforms. So. so that's pretty easy to find. Yeah. Um, Birth Bruja is amazing. Um, also very trans and queer informed and um, is like a decolonial um, birth worker. Um, and yeah, just doing a lot of really amazing work and connecting, I feel like is a, is a great person to like, um, also a hub of information. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it is, it is challenging. It's like, I think that, um, sometimes you just have to find the right person in your community and like see who they're tapped into. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like, 
you know, as a queer person, it's like, we kind of know who's around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that like can be nice, community. like right. the home birth community. Mm-hmm. But um, I think if anyone's out there and they're feeling like, oh, I don't know who that would be, or mm-hmm. I, I actually don't feel tapped in, um, I would just encourage them to like maybe reach out here and let us know and see if we can connect them. But yeah, yeah, I think people are trying to get skilled up, but still making it like a you know little hyperlink in their thing, and that's mm-hmm. okay. That's maybe a step on the way, okay, but okay. we see you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like a nod. It's a nod in the right direction, but um, yeah, there's just so many um, you know, Instagram and all those spaces are just like yeah. robust offerings there. But I yeah. can't. I don't always know what's out there. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, again, I mean, people can start with um, Roots Collaborative Care, um, contact us and we can try to help, you know, direct you in the right uh, geographical place or space or provider. Um, And where can people find you on you know, the World Wide Web, however that works. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I don't have that big of an internet presence, but if people have questions for me, they can always email me mm-hmm. and I'll give you my email. I guess you'll put that in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. First and last name. Um, and then, yeah, you can always find me through the Roots website. Maybe one day I'll make a uh, working Instagram and I'll we'll put that in the show notes Ooh. too if you're listening to this three years from now and you're, <laughs> you see an Instagram. I'm sitting across the table <laughs> from Francis and I can just see their confidence just like, blossoming <laughs> right in front of me so it's pretty exciting yeah I just I've never I've never been um that good at the internet but yeah. it's something to aspire to yeah. I just want to know all the people out there that are doing the great work and um yeah of course always so grateful to have found you in this space I feel like mm. for people who don't know Gailey is someone who has cultivated a really safe and wonderful um clinic in Nashville and I didn't know where I belonged and then I met Gailey and she was like oh you belong here and it was true and then now we work together and it's a dream oh (laughs) how beautiful thank you well and thank you for being here yeah it's a pleasure with us I know you're busy and I appreciate you taking time to chat with me and everybody who's listening I'm sure that that you have provided a a, um, just a whole new perspective and but with like a fresh, this like fresh spirit that comes with everything that you say and offer. And you're so generous with just your tolerance with all of us as we're trying to learn and be kinder humans. And sometimes that can be clumsy. So I really appreciate you too. All right, Preg Your Pardon listeners. That's another episode in the books and we will see you next time. Be kinder than necessary.